So as the kids make their way out, those who are staying, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And so this morning we're starting a new sermon series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll probably spend probably the next year and a half working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So my primary goal this morning is to encourage you and to motivate you to want to come along that journey with us. So to, des- to desire to enter in and to journey through the Gospel of Matthew. I'm excited about what we'll see and what we'll hear and how uh, that Gospel uh, will shape us. And so to kind of set things up, maybe the best way to set things up was a story... Um, you see this name everywhere, but you might not know the person. So let me tell you a little bit of a story about uh, Gary Keller. So not our Gray Keller, but Gary Keller. And Gary Keller is the Keller from the Keller Williams Realtors. So you see all the KW signs. He's, he's the K. And um, what's, there's a lot of things interesting about Keller Williams. I think it's one, and maybe, Peter, you can correct me if I'm not right, but I think it's one of the largest real estate, I don't know what you call yourself, firms or with the most brokers uh, throughout the world. And it's interesting story about how they got there. He started in the early 80s and was kind of growing this uh, real estate business. And it's a fascinating story of kind of going through kind of darkness, then rising up. But then he had started four different branches and what he realized about these different branches, that as, as long as he could be there and personally like give the energy to each branch, they did really well. But once his presence was removed, uh, they didn't do as well. So he started thinking, all right, how can, because I want to kind of scale this thing. I want to franchise it out. But what, what do we need to do so it can become scalable? And uh, in 1988, he took the whole year off, so kind of what he had to do, and I'm, um, I'm not sure how much that would have cost and like lost salary and taking the, the whole year off, but he took the whole year off. He hired somebody to do all of his normal operations, and then he hired someone to follow him around, and this is in 88, so not with like the phone, follow him around, I guess, with a gigantic kind of video camera and tape deck recorder and notepad and just record everything that he did when he would go into the branches. And then he went and found, he interviewed, found like the 10 uh, most prominent franchise attorneys and then hired one of them to work on their franchising manual. And uh, I don't know how much the whole thing costs, but I know uh, the attorney he hired, she charged $100,000 to construct the manual. And that's not her billable hours. That's just what the, the, like the piece of paper cost. And uh, so they created this manual. And what's interesting is he'll look back on that and say, uh, I don't know what the net worth of the company is, but he'll say that manual is the most valuable asset we have. Because what it is, is it's a training manual that trains people not only how we do it, but why. It kind of goes back and forth with practice and principles. And as I was listening to that story, I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be amazing if you had like this training manual for life that could walk you through all of the practices and the principles you need to be successful and thrive. And then that's when it dawned on me. We actually have one of those. 
That actually is a good illustration about what the Gospel of Matthew is. So we're about to start this journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and as we do, one helpful thing to think, all right, well, what actually is this book? And it's a book very similar to that training manual. Uh, you have an intentional scribe named Matthew who's going to follow Jesus around for three, hour, three years and watch all the things that he does, and then he's going to uh, intentionally and skillfully arrange everything to give you both the practices and the principles so you can thrive in life. So that's what we're going to begin. We're going to begin this journey through this training manual. So Matthew's gospel is the great training manual on what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. So that's, in one sense, what it is. It was the first gospel, um, first gospel in the order of the canon placed first because it's going to help us bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the first gospel because it's going to give us the foundation or the fundamentals or the framework. It's the framework that all of the rest of the Christian life is to be put on. So it's the skeleton we build off of. It's the, some other images that might help you. It's, it's the blueprint for how Jesus wants to build his house. It's the fundamental manual. It's our training manual. So that's what it is. Now let's take a few minutes and just think about, all right, if we're going to spend so much time as a church thinking through the Gospel of Matthew, um, why? Why would we want to do that? What do, we, what do we hope to gain and receive? Why are we going to walk through it? But actually, so this morning my text is the entire book of Matthew. But don't worry, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read the first verse and then the last couple verses. Because often, um, if you want to know the end of a book or its purpose or its meaning, you need to look at the ends. So, uh, you know, I want to write a whole series of books where there's two types of people in the world. There's people who correct grammar and there's people who have their grammar corrected. And there's two types of people in the world. There's people who read the last chapter first, and there's people who get really upset at people who read the last chapter first. So if you're the type of, like if you're going to read a mystery and you want to jump right to the end to know how it is, um, I feel sorry for you. You're missing out on one of life's great pleasures. But that is actually how you should read books of the Bible, because often they're going to set up their meaning, the order, the structure, the purpose, what they're trying to do. They'll set it in the beginning, they'll set the stage, and in the end, they'll bring you to a conclusion. So it is helpful to look at both of those things. So let's look, listen to the first verse of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, believe it or not, he's actually setting the whole stage for the whole rest of the story. And we'll move into that next week. Now, listen to the last couple of verses. Chapter 28, starting at verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. So now you're going up to the mountain. One of the themes we'll see in Matthew, he's going to take you up seven different mountains. And it's at the mountain that you encounter the living Lord. It's where you come into his presence. And the goal is to worship. So they worship. But even when they do, there's still some who doubt. And Jesus came and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, all authority, heaven and earth, has now been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, so he's setting up, beginning and the end. So if we're going to spend so much time kind of walking through this book, what can it do to help us? And there's three things I want you to think about this morning about the way it can help you. Matthew can help you because life is short, and Matthew will help you not to waste it. Life is short, so we can spend a lot of time in this book because he's going to help us not to waste life. Because one of the things Matthew is going to do is he's going to lay out for us all of the fundamentals, the fundamentals of what it means to live well in heaven and earth. God is the creator of heaven and earth, and what does it mean to live well? What are the fundamentals? One of the things, the way he structured his book is is there's five key blocks of teaching, and that's intentional, five major blocks of teaching, and each one of those blocks of teaching are giving us, in essence, uh, how to live 101, how to live life in his kingdom 101, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7, that's discipleship 101. What does it mean to follow him? What are the fundamentals? And then in chapter 10, this is missions and evangelism 101. What does it mean to take his gospel out? Chapter 13, this is the seven great parables about what the kingdom's life. These are our pictures and our metaphors that are shape how we're to live. This is kingdom living 101. And then you move in chapters 18 through 20. This is his uh, blueprint for how he's going to build his church. This is ecclesiology or church life. 101. And then he gets to the very end, 24 and 25. This is end times. This is how he expects us uh, to live in the light of difficulties and trials in a fallen, difficult world. This is live with hope, 101. And what he's actually doing is he's laying out for us all of the fundamentals for life and godliness. And you can think about in any kind of realm how important it is to know and hold on to the fundamentals. You know, you, any, uh, you know, you see this, like, in, I don't know if they're as popular now, but, like, the singing competition shows. We used to watch American Idol, and one of the things that would always tickle me to death and drive Cynthia crazy is you would have, like, kids get on there, and they would start wanting to riff and go all of these places, and uh, they would want to riff off all of these notes, but they would never hit the actual note. And so the idea is before you can riff on the notes, you have to hit the note. You hit the note first. You have to get the fundamentals. I used to teach, or when I'd coach and teach little kids basketball, one of the things used to drive me crazy is you see these seven-year-olds who aren't even strong enough to throw the ball to the rim, and what are they wanting to do? They're wanting to shimmy and shake and step back and fall away and do a fadeaway and chunk the ball and then dance before it even hits the rim. And I used to get so frustrated because I was like, you have to the fundamentals first. You don't get to do any shimmying and shaking until you can get your balance where your feet are pointed to the rim, you can get your elbow in, proper extension, and follow through. No shimmy and shaking until you can get your proper balance, elbow, extension, follow through. It's beef. That's the fundamentals. So you got to get the fundamentals down first, and that's one of the things Matthew is going to be a gift to us. These are the fundamentals for life life and godliness. And in order to get the fundamentals down, that also helps us because the second thing, life is complicated. I mean, life is so complicated. And one of the things that Matthew can do is to help us simplify it. One of the beautiful things that so many books in the Bible, there's certain books that are intentionally, what they're giving us are frameworks, paradigms, 
to help simplify how we go through and experience life. You know, that was when we were going through the Lord's Prayer. I was amazed at how simple, succinct, and comprehensive the Lord's Prayer is. I mean, if you could just memorize that, you actually have resources for every, every area of life. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength? That's the first three prayers. It's your, your name, your kingdom, your will. We honor your name in worship. We spread your kingdom in mission. We do your will. That's what discipleship is. These are comprehensive. And then how does he want us to live? How, do, how are we supposed to love others to ourselves? We're supposed to be generous with what we have. We're dependent on him, so we're, gener- we're generous. We're also forgiving. We express to others the very same grace that we've experienced. We experience it first, and we express it out. And then we're tried to be led uh, in a way that we can endure. Not led into temptation, but delivered from evil. It's comprehensive. And one of the things, did you notice when I was reading, so if you would have been in the original audience hearing Matthew's gospel kind of for the first time, or if you would have been a good, you know, typical uh, Orthodox Jewish little boy or girl, and you're listening to this, you're, there's all these bells are going off in your mind. So in the very beginning when it starts, when it says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, instantly you're taken back to Genesis, Because Genesis is structured around ten genealogies. These are the books of the genealogies of the heavens and earth. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. This is the book of the genealogy. There's ten of them. So instantly you're going back there. And then you look here at the end. What does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and in earth are now mine. I'm reuniting these two things. Heaven and earth are now reunited. I'm bringing them back together. And you're instantly taken back to Genesis where you're told, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world is created with these two spheres, heaven and earth. And Jesus is integrating, again, what has been separated by sin. And it's that integration that brings life. But that actually integration of all of life as heaven and earth can be such a powerful paradigm or such a helpful framework for you to think about every area of life. This actually, I was struck by this this week when I was listening to, um, I was listening to a podcast, and I promise this will be the last sports illustration. So one of my New Year's resolutions is to limit the sports illustrations and filter in other ones that might be more applicable to more of you. But I was listening to this podcast about one of my, another one of my standard New Year's resolutions is to, in, uh, to improve at golf, and uh I was listening to some one of my favorite teachers there, Pia Nielsen and Lynn uh, Marriott, and they have this thing called Vision 54 Golf, and uh, they're the coaches of one of your, your famous neighbors, Annika Sorenstam, they're uh, her coach. And uh, one of the things they were talking about, kind of what makes their kind of teaching philosophy unique, it says one of the things they focus on, uh, they said, you know, there's two things you need if you're going to be a successful, if you're going to be a successful golfer. You need to know the mechanics. There's actual mechanics that you have to know, like how to hold the club, how to bring it back, how to swing. You have to know these mechanics. But then also, there's, you have to control and be aware of your emotions. So you have to know your own internal mental state. 
And understand. And so kind of what makes our teaching unique is there's a lot of people who are very aware of the mechanics and can teach that really well, uh, mostly men. And then there's not a lot of people who are aware of your internal emotional states and can teach that very well. So what we're trying to do is bring those two things together so you can be a, the best golfer you can be. I thought, isn't that interesting? In order to be a great golfer, there's two dynamics you need. You need the physical, mechanical, structural, and then you need the mental, emotional, almost spiritual. It's almost like God created the world in such a wetness. I mean, you bring those two things together in the same person. You have like the employee of the month every month. You know, amazing employee. Just those two things. Or you think about all the different areas of life. I wonder, like, a home. What do you need to have a home? I mean, you actually need the physical, tangible structure piece of the home, but then you also need love and joy and warmth and emotional connectivity. Like, what if that could be a framework to help you think through every area of your life? Is there areas where I need to actually improve in my competence and skill? Um, And then there are areas where I need to improve in my emotional stability and health and engagement and connectivity, this could be the kind of thing that could help give clarity to every aspect of your life. And one of the things, this is one of the key themes that runs through um, almost all of Matthew's main blocks of teaching. Like the key, one of the key themes in the Sermon on the Mount is how you can be an integrated whole person. How you can, what can, what's true on the outside can be true on the inside. So you'll talk, he'll talk about, all right, when you do, there's certain actual practices that Jesus assumes and expects you're going to do. I assume and expect you will give to the poor and you will do it in secret and in public. I expect you to come to the place regularly where offerings are given and you're giving. I expect that. But then I expect you to do it in such a way where your heart is motivated by generosity, not by the public praise you can receive. Or I expect you to come to the place where you're joined with God's people so you can offer up public prayers and praises, but also expect you to do it in secret and quiet from a heart that's dependent on your Father, not so you can be praised. He's integrating both body and soul. He's integrating activity and heart. I think if you're honest, you know, every one of us probably will have a bent where we're maybe more naturally inclined to one, but maybe need more help in the other. So everyone, you might be bent to be more of just a practical, no-nonsense, don't really care about touchy-feely emotions, just tell me what I need to do, and we'll do it. And that's wonderful. And maybe the way you can grow and develop and become whole this year is to be brought more in tune with your emotional connectivity. And maybe you're very aware of how you're feeling and your emotions and how all these different things make you feel. And maybe the way you can grow and develop is to become more skillful and competent in the things you're doing. So you see, this is a framework that can be very helpful for us to think about life. And when it can, it can give us the fundamentals that will then sim- uh, simplify things for us. And in that simplicity can come clarity. Because life is confusing. And that's the third thing Matthew can help us with. He can help bring clarity. Here's the things you actually need to do. One of the things, you know, one of the life stages we're in is we're often having to remind our kids so often, one of the phrases they'll hear probably 48 times throughout the day is, um, um, do you know what you're supposed to be doing right now? 
So like, we'll see, oh, you're dressed up as a stormtrooper and you're pirouetting through the kitchen. That's wonderful, but do you know what you're supposed to be doing right now? You're supposed to be cleaning your room. You're supposed to be, and just redirection. Everybody needs a little redirection at times, sometimes more than others. And one of the things that Matthew can do is he was going to give you, this is Jesus's loving redirection. Do you know what you're supposed to be doing right now? Oh, you're doing all that. That's wonderful, but you're supposed to be seeking ye first the kingdom of God, then all this other stuff will be added. Seek that first. And so it's this gentle, loving rejection, uh, redirection, not rejection. Because life is confusing to help clarify. It also can help clarify, because, and this is one of the brilliant things that we'll see, is Matthew is a master at both direct and indirect communication. So we'll see in a minute when we look at his structure. He balances story and sermon in a brilliant way because he's such a good teacher. He's the teacher of, of the four Gospels. He's, he's giving us Jesus' teaching to train us so we know how to think. And one of the things he'll do, but he doesn't just tell stories to entertain us. He tells stories to uh, instruct us. So, for example, a number of the way the stories and the teaching work is there's so many things that are just confusing. Like, who is God? Who am I? How can I know him? How can I respond to him? How should I respond in difficult, trying situations? And what he'll do is actually tell us stories to illustrate that. So like in chapter 1, the goal of chapter 1 is to introduce you and to teach you who the Trinity is. But the way he sets it up is he sets it up in such a way where you see this uh, narrative genealogy that runs through three big epics of history showing that who God the Father is is he's the one who is overseeing and orchestrating history. And then who is Jesus? He's the one who enters into the world. Jesus, he comes from the human line of uh, Abraham and David. He's the Christ, means he's the anointed one. And he is God with us who's going to save us from our sins. That's who he is. And who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings the reality of who Jesus is to bear into the world. He brings him to dwell here among us. He's the, the presence of uh, God himself with us. That's why he teaches us who God is. And each chapter is teaching us these things. All right, so let's move kind of... So that's what, that's what we can... That, that's how Matthew's gospel can help us. It can give us the fundamentals we need to live. It can help clarify the things that we need to know. It can simplify. So what do you need to know if you're going to walk through this? What are some of the things you need to do if you're going to be able to unlock its power and to be able to experience it? So here's kind of the third thing. How can we experience uh, this gospel for all of its truth and power? Um, one of the things you're going to need to know is you're going to need to learn to train your eye to be able to see the structure. Because he's actually going to embed what he means in the way it's structured. All right, so let me give you, uh, so let, let me, we'll do a little activity to illustrate how important kind of seeing the structure is. We're going to do a little, all right, so we're going to do a memory challenge. So the kids are about to start school this week. Everybody's brain has been put in, uh, uh, put in park for a couple of weeks. So now let's get it revved back up, and we're going to do a challenge. And I'm going to give, all right, so in just a second, uh, Graham's going to flash a series of 16 letters on the screen. And I'm going to give, I mean, there's only 16 letters. How long do you need? I'll give you 20 seconds. And uh, we'll see how many you can remember, Okay. All right, ready? All right, go. All right, Graham, now go back. Don't go to the next one. Go away. So 
that. Sorry, I did Yeah, yeah, good. All right. All right, so it's gone. How many do you think you can remember? Don't say that. Just try it in your mind. See if you can re- redo it. Does anybody feel confident that they remember all 16? All right, I'm going to, in just a second, I'm going to put, all right, this is the exact same letters. They're in the exact same sequence, but I'm actually going to shift the structure slightly, and we'll see if you can do better once you're, once you're able to see a different structure. All right, so I'll give you 20 seconds. All right, Graham, bring up the second list. All right, now Graham, take it off. All right, now how many of you think you could remember? Which, which of the two do you think you would do better in? Probably the second. Now, it's the exact same letters and uh, exact same sequence. But with the second one, you could actually discern the actual structure. Now, one of the challenges when we come to any book of the Bible, but a book like Matthew especially, we will look at it like it's the first list. Like, this is just a bunch of random stuff scattered together, and I don't really know how to fit it all together. But Matthew actually very intentionally has structured things in a certain way so you can learn and embody. and He doesn't just want you to know it so you can pass the test, so you can memorize random letters. He wants you to know it so it can enter into you and you can embody it and it can change you. But actually seeing the structure can help you understand and remember what you're supposed to see. So on your sheet, if you have the sheet, this won't be up on the screen, but we'll cycle through this all throughout the next year and a half. But there's three kind of structures that you'll need to be able to learn to see if you're going to experience the truth and the transformation that Matthew uh, wants for you. The first is you'll have to learn to see the literary structure. Matthew very intentionally is structuring his gospel um, in a specific literary way. So like if you have your little sheet, you can see he does, he balances, he'll give you a narrative, so he'll give you story, and then sermon. Story, sermon. Narrative, discourse. Indirect communication, direct. Watch Jesus as he works, now listen to him as what he says. And then each one's they balance, they build, and they reinforce one another. It goes back, story, sermon, story, sermon. And so we'll have to learn to be able to navigate, to know where we are, to know how they fit. And then one of the things he loves to do is he loves to, when he's given you stories and the sermon, is to use kind of numbers to help illustrate and help you remember what he's saying. Remember, he's, he's giving this, first century, this is an oral culture. Uh, people couldn't keep books written like in their pocket and walk around with them. If you wanted to know the word, you had to hide it in your heart. You had to remember it. So his book, his gospel is intentional. He's structured in such a way to help you uh, memorize things. And one of the reasons I love Matthew so much is one of the tools he often uses is he'll chunk things in threes. And so he'll put them. And I, I think that corresponds to just how we're designed. We, it's just easy to remember things in threes. And so, but he'll, he loves to play with numbers, so he'll do things like, um, th- there's, a, there's a debate in New Testament scholars, like the Lord's Prayer. Is it six commands or is it seven? So do you have six or seven? And kind of scholars will go back and forth. I think if Matthew heard those, he'd just laugh and say yes. It, it, it's intentionally 
six and seven. And so he'll, he'll set them up. So you have the first half is very intentional. Um, how you love the Lord your God with all your heart is your, your kingdom or your name, your kingdom, your will. These are first things. The second half is very intentional, how that works itself out in the life of others. You give us uh, our daily bread, our sins, and then lead us. So how we're to be led. So you have these very uh, intentional, balanced two groups of three. But then he sneaks in that last command. You know the last command. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it's like, wait a second, is that, is that one command? So do you have three or do you have four? And I think he was right because, you know, now you actually have seven. And one of the numbers he loves to bring out is things come in sevens, sevens and tens. And he's doing that to help you so they can stick in your mind. There's symbolic meaning behind the numbers, but then there's also uh, meanings just to help you memorize them. Another example would be like chapters 8 and 9. Uh, one of the questions, is it nine miracle stories or is it ten? And I think he'd smile and say yes, because there's three sets. I need another hand. There's three sets of three stories, miracle stories, one, two, three. And then that last one, uh, he gives the story of the woman or uh, the official's daughter who's dying, and Jesus is going to her, but on the way, Jesus heals the woman with the, the flow of blood. So with that last one, it's like, well, is that two stories or is it one? Well, if it's just one, you have the balance, but if it's two, you actually then have ten all together. So Matthew, when you learn to begin to see the structure, you begin to see how all these things are fitting together. And you'll see story, sermon, story, sermon. But another key thing to understanding is not just the literary structure, it's also the historical structure. Because he's taking you through this historical journey. He's walking you somewhere. And you can sit like in your little, um, or on the outline you hear, he's actually through Jesus is going to walk through the whole historical story of the whole Old Testament. And so like chapters 1 through 7, he's going to present Jesus. There's all these echoes and images from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, through New Moses. There's all these, these, these subtle images and echoes where you're starting to think, hmm, that's interesting. Here we have, it begins with these generations. These are the beginnings of, this is the book of the generations. And then in the very beginning, you have this character named Joseph who's being led and guided by God as he interprets dreams. And you think, hmm, I've heard elements of this story before. But then there's elements where there's this tyrannical king who's trying to kill all of the babies to hold on to his throne. And then there's the people who have to rescue the baby and then flee in the middle of the night. And you think, hmm, I've heard this... The, these are echoes of a story we've heard before. And he's walking you through the whole history of Israel through the whole book. The first seven chapters, Jesus is like this new Moses figure who's rescued and then who gathers his people and then they walk through the wilderness instead of 40 years, it's 40 days and they're tempted in the wilderness and then he ascends to the mountain to give them their charter of what it means to be his people. And then in chapter 8, he's coming down as the new Joseph or new uh, uh, or who he is, Yeshua, the new Joshua, going into the land of Israel to conquer it and drive out all of his enemies. In chapter 8 and 9, you see him, uh, these great Ten miracle stories where he's driving out all of his enemies by the power of grace and living through faith. And then he gathers his 
uh, people in chapter 10 to teach them his new 12, the new 12 tribes that are, are to go and to go into the land of Israel to, in essence, take it back. So he's re-walking you through the conquest. And then he becomes the new David, and you start seeing these elements of like the new David. The point of David is David had to finish what Joshua started. And especially in Chronicles, it talks about how David had to bring the land and the people to a place of rest. And in that second section, Jesus is the new David who says, Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You will find real rest. I'm defeating our foes so you can be at rest. And then in chapter 13, it starts as the wise king. Wisdom is the way the kings rule. And chapter 13 is the wisdom of the parables. We translate it parables, but they're hakma, they're proverbs, they're parables. This is the way kings talk. This is how you live, uh, you rule with wisdom. And in 13, he's like the new Solomon who now is going to build his new house. And then that moves and you see he's tracing the story all the way through. And if we're going to be able to really appreciate what's going on, we have to tune our ears and tune our eyes to be able to see those things. And then all of those things are going to help teach us the the theological outline, the point of all of the different things. So let's let's wrap this up. So what does, uh, just as we begin on this journey, what I want to do is just encourage you that this is an exciting and a thrilling gospel to go through because it can provide to you the, the structure and the order and the training and the things you need so you can live well. One of the things it can do is it can offer, you can see in Matthew's uh, well-ordered gospel, it can give you a sense that we serve a God who's well-ordered. When our oldest, our oldest daughter loves ballet and, uh, we started thinking, I wonder why she likes it so much. And I don't know where we go to the Cambridge School of Ballet, and you know, parents aren't allowed in there. So I'm thinking, I wonder what's happening in here that they, uh, they like it. Uh, she likes it so much. And one of the things that uh, kind of we became to realize is it's very, you know, it's classical music. It's very calm. It's quiet. It's well-ordered. And we started joking. I wonder if this is her moment of entering into peace and order and serenity and structure in this uh, ballet studio. And Matthew can be like that for you. You can enter into and you can breathe the, the well-ordered book that brings, brings order. But another thing I want you to see as we walk through it, one of the things I think are so fascinating is Jesus comes... Uh, He's God with us, but actually as he comes, you're going to see he's walking back through the path that Israel has failed throughout their whole history. So as he's retracing their steps, we're actually going to see him where he goes into the wilderness and where they failed, he's victorious. And we're going to see them that where he goes into the land where they failed, he's victorious. And where they failed at building the house for the Lord, he's victorious. What they can't do, he does. And one of the great things I think about this book is it can not only help order you, it can help encourage you. Because one of its overarching messages is that no failure is final. You know, as we read through it, one of the sad things about the book is that the Lord is sending not just his servant, not just Moses, Joshua, David, Jeremiah, Solomon. He's actually sending his own son, And what you would expect at every stage, you would expect him to come to his own, and you would expect his own people to joyfully embrace him. But they don't. Just like the Israel in the Old Testament failed, the people of Israel in the New Testament fail. 
Because you would expect when he comes and he gives them as the new Moses, the new law, you would expect, well, yeah, them to say, yeah, he's right. We have been interpreting the law the wrong way. This is the proper way to see it. We should repent and follow him. That's not what you see. You expect when he comes as the new David to build his house that they would say, uh, yes, you build it, do, command us, you're our king, command us. That's not what you see. And then you expect when he comes as a new Jeremiah to purify and cleanse the temple, you'd say, uh, yes, we have failed. That's not what you see. But one of the beautiful things that you keep seeing is even in the midst of every failure, he's not going to stop. And he's going to say that their failure is not final. There's no failure, even death, can't keep him from fulfilling his purposes. He says, I made a promise to Abraham and to David that through their families, I'm going to build this kingdom that's going to bless the entire earth, and no matter what, you can't stop it. And that's good news for us. That's hope. Even in the midst of their failures, they can't stop him, and even in the midst of our failures, we can't stop him. So I don't know what your kind of emotional state is as you start a new year. Maybe Maybe you're like a golden retriever just ready to tackle the new year with all types of energy and enthusiasm, and you can't wait to bebop and bounce through life. And if you are, I'm thrilled for that. You can come over to our house, and maybe some of that energy will rub off. But maybe you're in a different situation, and you, you know, maybe your stance to like New Year's resolutions is, is why bother? Why set up something you know will just disappoint yourself? And you failed enough. And maybe you come weary, wounded, and broken, and this is a time of not so much self-reflection, but self-condemnation. One of the gifts of the book of Matthew is that no failure is final. All of them it can be overcome, and he can triumph over all of them. So let's take a few minutes and let's pray and ask the Lord to uh, help us be eager to have open hearts and receptive minds to hear what he's going to say through this series. So Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, and we come before you now thanking you for the gift of your word, that you provide us with a manual on how to live well at infinite cost to yourself. You provide it, and then you don't put it under copyright restrictions so only certain can see it or access it. You broadcast it publicly so that we can experience it and know it. So we give you thanks for it. And we confess now that life is short, so we ask that you help us. Life is short. Help us not to waste it. Help us to focus on the central, core, fundamental things that um, bring you glory and are for our good. And Lord, we confess that often life can be so complicated. Sometimes we feel so stretched, so run ragged, so thin, and often we don't know where to put our resources, our energies, and so we ask that you help us, send us your word that can help simplify life so we can know what are the vital few things and we cannot um, get distracted by the, the many. And then, Lord, we also confess that so often life can be confusing. Sometimes we, we're in a fog of confusion, so we ask that you help us, help give us the clarity that we need. So I pray for anyone who's coming to this room this morning uh, in any of those states. They feel uh, discouraged. Give them the encouragement they need. They feel overwhelmed. Give them the peace they need. Lord, I pray for all those who this past year they've been doing well. 
They've lived in the light of your blessings and they've run hard after you. I pray that you would help them to keep going and be encouraged. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.